excellent job. Thank you all. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Um, it's the late 1800s. I want you to picture yourself there. Uh, first, who's a native Fort Worthan? My people. Hello. How are you guys? Born and raised. Love this place. The late 1800s, there are battles for railways, citizens, business, and prestige well underway between Dallas and Fort Worth. Tensions have always run high between these two counties. One of the famous benefactors of Fort Worth, Eamon G. Carter, would only take a sack lunch anytime he had business dealings in Dallas. His reason? I don't want to spend a penny in Dallas. <laughs> While Dallas has historically been more recognized, real North Texans know enough to pat Dallas's sweet little head and say, bless your heart. In 1875, Dallas lawyer Robert Coward, I'm going to call him Coward, uh, took out a column in the Dallas Daily Herald. His column was aimed at the town of Fort Worth. He attempted to insult the smaller and less prestigious city. The column read, Fort Worth in a cold sweat, mass meeting of citizens, panter loose in her streets. Last week, our suburban village of Fort Worth... (laughs) was the scene of the wildest excitement. Nothing like it has been seen since the report that the railway was coming. The high water in the Trinity overflowed the bottom and drove out a panther who wandered at his own sweet will during the night through the streets. Next morning, his tracks were seen by the terror-stricken natives, and a scene ensued which beggars description. The whole village turned out to examine the tracks of the monster, and a public meeting was immediately called. Fort Worth never does anything without a meeting. Sound like some Baptist. Parson Fitzgerald drove down a stake reading, War the Panther had laid down. Instead of being insulted, though, Fort Worth named their first fire engine Panther. Since then, Fort Worth has adopted the symbol in the police badge, in statues scattered around downtown, in business names, and most importantly, in our hearts. Fort Worth has been affectionately known and been called Panther City, and any time there is flare-up for uh, business purposes or prestige purposes, Fort Worth businesses seem to be called Panther City more and more and more and more. You guys heard of the Fort Worth Cats, our baseball team? Have you heard of Panther City Pavilion? Have you heard of Panther Island? Maybe you didn't know that there was so much Panther symbolism throughout our city. It's a subtle way for us to adopt an insult that was aimed at us. It's why I have a panther tattoo that Pastor normally makes fun of. But (laughs) this is merely a label, not the real name, right? Fort Worth is the real name, but this is simply a label that got attached to us. Now, when we read the New Testament, one of our quickest observations should be that there's a word missing. We're missing something. There's a word that's almost non-existent. It's the word Christian. Do you know how many times the word Christian shows up in the New Testament? You guys are really smart. Three times total. And the times that it does show up, it's not meant as a nice phrase or a nice label meant to describe some people. Rather, it's a pejorative phrase. It's an insult hurled at the people who are followers of Christ, just like Panther for Fort Worth. But the Christians did not call themselves by this name. They would later adopt it simply because rather than being insulted and uh, uh, taking offense to something silly like a, a label, they moved on and we have that name now. But that's not the name 
that you'll find in the New Testament that describes what we are. Followers of Christ use a different word. It's the word disciple. And if I were to look up the word disciple in the New Testament, or disciples, plural, you'll start to see a drastic uh, a drast, uh, sorry, a drastic <laughs> difference between the word Christian and disciple. Disciple shows up 299 times. Clearly, this is what Jesus wants us to be. Jesus calls his followers to something different than just a label or a title like the word Christian. Rather, he calls us to something far more serious, a disciple. This is what he says in Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their what? Cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See what I'm saying about it being a serious call? It's not just a, 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 an idea that we adopt. Rather, it's an identity that we live into a lifestyle that we incorporate. So the question that we need to answer after having looked at the four church models and having arrived as a church at the fifth or maybe first church model, which is discipleship, as that's what we talked about last week, we need to answer the question, what is a disciple? The call of Jesus over and over again is not, here's some information you need in order to get into heaven when you die. Nor is it, here's some great tips to live a moral or Christianly life. The Bible has often been called a like uh, blueprint to life or something like that. Well, there's some things in there that you can learn and some uh, practical tips to living, but that's not really what it's doing. It's telling a story about our Creator and about Jesus Christ. There's something very different happening in there, and it's calling us towards something. It's not just giving us information and pithy sayings as if it's Aesop's fables. Rather, it's trying to change who we are fundamentally. The call of Jesus, then, is not just a call for information. It's a call to follow me. Mark chapter 1, we see an example where Jesus is uh, gathering the, the beginnings of his his specific 12 disciples that we might call apostles or the disciples. In verse 16 it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Another way to say follow me is come and be my disciple. Now, the Hebrew word for disciple was Talmudim. Talmudim. Everybody say Talmudim. That's the word for disciple. It can also mean, or within the, the kind of the way, an English way to describe that would be a student, an apprentice, and a follower. I think the best English word that captures the idea of Talmudim, disciple, is apprentice. That's the best way that we understand what that word means. It entails a relationship between the teacher and the student that goes well beyond classroom lectures and static learning. An apprentice follows their teacher, learns from their teacher, has discussions with their teacher, and works next to and alongside as they learn all of these things. If we can understand what Jesus' call meant to the original 12 disciples in the first century and what discipleship meant in general in the first century, 
that will set the stage for what Jesus' call means for you and for I, who are also invited to be disciples, followers, students, and apprentices. Discipleship was the apex of the Jewish educational system. There are three levels that are in this system. The first was Beit Sefer. This was a grade school where many Jewish children would learn basic reading and writing and maths, arithmetic. This is what they would learn. And, and in, I think oftentimes we think that like ancient people are stupid and silly and they're not as enlightened as we are. Well, I want to tell you that in the Jewish society around Jesus' time, about 90% of their populace, and particularly the Jews, were illiterate could write and read, could do basic math. They weren't uneducated, silly, dumb people. They weren't at all. They were highly sophisticated people. How do you think we have such a highly sophisticated um, text with our Bible? These people are incredibly smart, and that's due in part because of this discipleship system that they had set up, this educational system. Beit Sefer is the first level. Uh, From about age 5, age 6, to about age 12, boys and girls would go, And they would uh, learn each day portions of scripture. In fact, large portions, if not the entire first five books of the Bible, would be committed to memory. Anybody in here? Can you imagine a six-year-old? Like, (laughs) can you? Who has a six-year-old or like someone in that age range in here? Can you imagine them just spouting Deuteronomy off to you? Yeah, exactly. That's wild. Or Leviticus. My goodness. So they would have a lot of, if not the entire five books, the first five books of the Bible memorized. Around age 12, um, the girls and, and the boys that weren't just exceptional students, they were good students or, or bad students, they would just be released and they would go to uh, uh, become apprentices of their fathers or another expert within their village to learn some trade that they would be doing. And then girls would start looking for potential marriage partnerships and around age 13 or 14 they would start having kids. If you were one of the best of the best students, though, you would go on to the second phase of this educational system. It's called Beit Talmud. Those students from around ages 12 or 13 up to about 16, 17, 18, just depending, would continue learning full-time rather than learning a trade. They would have most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized by that point. I mean, again, can you imagine? Does anybody have a physical Bible in here today? Could you grab the Old Testament? Just grab it and show us what that looks like. She's, she's going to leaf through up to Matthew here. Just hold it high up there. She's got it in her left hand. That's a big chunk of something to memorize. Don't feel so discouraged. You know about 1,500 songs probably, right? This is a very oral culture. They don't have songs memorized like that. They, they have this stuff memorized. They have the Bible memorized. So from 12 to 16, this is what you would be doing. Now, at that point, most are done. At that point, most are finished. There, there's nothing else to do. You're going to go learn a trade. You're going to go uh, start with your family business or whatever. But the absolute cream of the crop would go on to the third and final phase, which is the Talmudim. What does Talmudim mean? Disciple. This is the discipleship phase. This is the most difficult level to achieve and required real devotion. Here's how it would work. You would go find a rabbi. He wouldn't come to you. You would go find him because he has prestige and honor. He's not coming to you. He doesn't know who you are, but you know who he is. And so you would go to him and you would ask, if you wanted to train under him, for an interview. 
If you were lucky to even get one, you would then be grilled on your understanding of the Torah and the rest of the scriptures. He would interrogate you on the oral law, which is called the Mishnah. It's like akin to what our um, uh, commentaries are today. He would ask you about so-and-so, uh, Rabbi Hillel's uh, viewpoint of the first, second, third, fourth greatest commandments in the law versus Rabbi Shimei's, or uh, what the Nephilim are and how that all works and what really happened in the flood. And I mean, they would ask you all these really difficult questions and you would have to answer those. And if you were able to hang, you know what I'm saying, with the, rab- with the rabbi that was interviewing you, if you were intelligent enough, if you had enough ability and acumen to answer these questions, he would ask you something like this, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Now, if you're lucky to even get this far in the process, there are three goals that you would then adopt. Here's the first goal, to be with your rabbi. Being a disciple wasn't a nine-to-five thing. It's not like a a job that you go perform and then you go home. No, it's a 24-hour, 365 days a year kind of thing. When I say be with your rabbi, the goal of the disciple was literally to follow as close as you possibly could. At any moment of the day, all the time, following with him wherever he went. In fact, a well-known blessing for a disciple in the first century was to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Have you ever walked on the beach with flip-flops? Or walked in a sandy... Who went to Israel? Is it dusty there? It is. So you can imagine sandals traveling with people on open roads, not paved roads. You can imagine people flipping the dirt up as they walk. Maybe they're not wearing flip-flops, but still kicking the dirt up as they go. And if you are a good disciple, if you're a blessed disciple, if you're following closely behind your rabbi, then you would want to literally be covered in the dust of his, you know, dust that he kicks up. This is what it means to be with your rabbi, where he is, what he's doing. You are there. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. Your goal was to follow your rabbi so closely that you would begin to become a carbon copy of him. Now, I know that we all want to be individuals and snowflakes and all that stuff. I I get it. And we are, and you all are super special. But in the first century, this is what you wanted to be. You wanted to be a carbon copy of your rabbi. You would imitate his movements, his speech, his mannerisms, and eventually the goal was that you would be thinking what he would be thinking. You would adopt the same values that he had because you wanted to be him. The third goal is to do what he did. Do what he did. Whatever he did with you, you then do that next. At age 18, 17, 16, depending on how good of a student you were, you would start training with your rabbi. Does anybody know the age that a rabbi would be released to become an official rabbi? 30. I heard it here in the front. I can't see who it is. Okay. 30. 30 years old is when you'd be released. Can you imagine studying the Bible full time, following this guy around, discussing the Bible back and forth for 12 to 14 years? That's exactly what these disciples, these Talmudim, would do with their rabbi. And so you would be watching closely all the time. What is my rabbi doing? because I want to do what he did. Finally, when you would be released to go and make your own disciples, after these years of following and training, you would then be given the honor to go and set up interviews and have disciples come to you 
and they would start the process all over again of the grilling of the Torah and the blah, 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 and finally you would ask people, come and follow me, come and be my disciple, and you would then do what your rabbi did. So here are the three goals. Be with your rabbi, become like your rabbi, and do what he did. Those three goals are the same goals for each of us today. So what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Christ who is striving to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Now the way that we talk about that here at Cornerstone is a disciple is one who is being transformed through their head, their heart, and their hands, and that requires a decision to be a part of what Christ is about. Now we find this head, heart, and hands uh, formula when Jesus first calls his disciples. We saw it in Mark chapter 1. We'll look at Matthew chapter 4 now, verse 19. Jesus says to his first disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' first words are, follow me. This is a head decision, meaning it's a choice to be with Jesus. Now remember, this is in the air. This is the culture of first century, Jewish people particularly. They know what it means to be a disciple. They know what a rabbi would be saying. They know the lingo and the language So when Jesus walks up to someone and says, follow me, do you understand now why they immediately drop their nets and go? Because this is code language for what a great rabbi would say to one of his Talmudim. So the fishermen recognize the follow me immediately. And behind their choice is a trust, a faith, a sincerity that indicates a real heart for this teacher, for Christ particularly, and whatever he has ahead. But see, this choice isn't just a simple or insignificant kind of thing. It's a recognition of the cost of discipleship. They know what it means to leave their family business and now walk around with a rabbi. They know what, that, what that's going to entail. This isn't uh, a shock to them that now for the next however long it's going to be, They're going to commit themselves to be with their rabbi, become like their rabbi, and do what he did. And that requires an all-in sort of commitment, 24 hours a day. So they drop their nets, and they make a decision to be Talmudim disciples. They know that it's going to take their time, their talents, and their resources to accomplish the transformation, the growth, and the change that it will take to be like their rabbi. It will take their effort, their strength, their discipline to really be with Jesus where he's at. So the head decision isn't as simple as a yes or no. It's an all-in sort of thing. Now, since we, where we are right now, can't be with the physical person of Jesus, what we mean in our context, what it means to be with Jesus for us, is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. That's what it means. The awareness of and connection to Jesus indicates a relationship where we're actively engaging with, thinking about, and talking to constantly turning our minds and directing our thoughts towards God. Jesus likens it to being a vine and a branch. He says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, 
you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my Talmudim. This is what it means. This is the very first part. And if you're new to Christianity, you don't really know what all this thing means. The first thing to practice is being with God. Practicing presence calling your mind back towards him. Dallas Willard puts it really well. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will then replace the former one as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. I love this. Catch this here. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. That's exactly what it looks like to be with God. It becomes natural for us to call our minds back to him. This practice, along with the other spiritual disciplines that you learn through the process of discipleship here at Cornerstone, like memorizing scripture, daily prayer, reading your Bible, investing in community, silence and solitude, and fasting, all point to a directing and redirecting of your minds back to Jesus. Jesus says it himself, this is how we will show ourselves to be his disciples. When we constantly, over and over again, day after day, minute after minute, redirect our minds, center ourselves back on Christ. So that's the first part. That's the head decision. Next, Jesus is asking Disciples to submit to becoming what he wants to make them into. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, the next part of that phrase is, I will make you. Now, this is a heart decision. This is where I say, I will become like Jesus. Absolutely, Jesus is the one who makes the call, which, by the way, is completely countercultural. In the culture of the Jews, the disciple was the one who went and sought out the rabbi. In Jesus' model, he is the one who goes out and seeks his disciples, which is really interesting. So he goes to them and says, follow me. But it's not just as simple as, okay, we'll just check it out for a little bit. No, what you're submitting to as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, is a submission of, I want to be changed to become what you are. Because again, I want to be with you, become like you and do what you did. So Jesus wants to transform you into something brand new, something different. He wants to transform you into a true human like himself as you imitate and emulate him by taking his teachings and then applying them. This is how you image Jesus, how you become a reflection of him, fulfilling your vocation as an image bearer, which is what Genesis 1 and 2 talk about. He wants you to adopt his values and his characteristics and his attitudes and the way that he views and thinks about the world, the things that we find in the Bible and through the guiding of the Spirit. 
This is what he wants you to be about. And when you are about those things in full submission to his authority and his will, your heart will begin to transform. Here's the reality, though. This will be a process. And many of us think, oh, process. That sounds like work. It is. It is work. But here's the reality. Is that you right now are being discipled by something or someone. Now, whether you're intentionally seeking Jesus or unintentionally following something else, that is the question. You are being discipled into something or someone. Each of us are following something or someone so closely that we are being transformed into the image of that thing. We become little reflections of that thing, whatever it is. And I can prove this to you by asking a simple assessment question. Who or what are you becoming? Think out 10 years from now. Who will you be? What is your current trajectory as you look forward 10, 20, 30 years? Think about your choices and your attitudes. Think about what you value and cherish. Think about your current characteristics. Think about the way that you view the world. Where do they lead? Where are you headed? Are you on track to be Jesus expressed through your unique personality? Or are you on track to be something else or someone else? If the goal is to become more like Jesus, then what will happen and what it will look like is his life expressed through mine. So what he was about, I'm about. What he thinks is good, I also think is good. And when my, uh, when my person fights against that, who's right? Sunday school answer time, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is right. And so who needs to change? I do. We do. And that's a heart decision. That has to, we have to allow God to do that within us. If I want his life expressed through mine, then it's not going to just be behavior modification. I mean, that's important. But Jesus isn't just after your outward action. He's after your heart. He wants you changed from the inside because that's true change not a mask that you wear. So the invitation of discipleship requires my willingness to be changed by Jesus. Here's, here's the thing. I, I can't continue to be who I've always been and just somehow magically trip into an intimate relationship with Jesus. I can't accidentally become more like Jesus. It takes effort. It takes devotion. It takes a willingness to become like our teacher, our rabbi. Now, the third thing that Jesus says in Matthew 4:19 is fishers of men. This is a hands decision where the goal is to be like Jesus or do what he did. This means that I'm going to get on the same mission as Jesus was on. His mission to usher in the kingdom of God through the process of personal transformation. If you remember back to our covenant series, over and over and over and over again, the Israelites break the covenants because they don't have the right heart. They don't have God's spirit within them. And the prophets identified this problem. 
What we need is a circumcised heart, a brand new heart. Circumcision of the flesh is nothing. What we need is a brand new thing within us. What we need is God's spirit to reside in us so we can follow the law correctly, so we can obey God is really the point. So Jesus shows up and his offer is that he's going to give us a brand new heart, give us the spirit of God and transform us from the inside out. But what he's trying to do is usher in his kingdom. And the way that we get changed is through the process of relational discipleship. We don't get changed, again, by accident. It's through the process of a relationship. He wants each of us to become fishers of men. Now, this is not just a bad pun. That, like, Jesus isn't making a dad joke right now. When, when he shows up and sees the disciples who are fishermen fishing, he's like, you're fishing for fish, how about for men? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a pun that he's making. Jesus is much funnier than that. He's much more sarcastic. He's much funnier. Um, this is actually a well-known Hebrew idiom. Uh, an idiom is like, uh, in English, oh, that's really cool. What I mean is I like that. I think it's awesome. It's nice to me, right? That's, that's what cool means. It doesn't literally mean that thing has less heat than something else, right? So you understand how languages work like that. In Hebrew, they have the same things. This is an idiom that's not literal. There's an idea behind it, and the idea is that a fisher of men was a description of a great rabbi, a great teacher, one who could capture people's hearts and imaginations, and through that capturing would change them into something new. So again, why did the disciples immediately drop their nets? Because they wanted to become great rabbis like this rabbi who was calling them. It would be as if a rock star, I don't know, like whatever field you're in, that, like the top person in that field came to you and said, I know, I see what you're doing here right now. You're awesome. I want you to come on a full ride scholarship to my college. I'm going to pay for every one of your expenses in life and I'm going to take care of you and teach you so that when you leave, you can then do what I'm doing right now. And whatever you're into right now, I, I don't know if, if you're like me, but for me, I'd be like, sign me up. I'm in. This is exactly the call of Jesus. He wants to make them into fishers of men, disciples who have the ability to capture people with the message that they preach, the message that they teach. God wants to make each one of us fishers of men. Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, the point here is that when Jesus calls his disciples, it's not just only, it's not only about knowledge, it's not only about your feelings, you have to do something with what you're learning. Jesus isn't content to just tell his disciples information. What he wants to do is actually partner with his followers. And he wants them to be about what he is about. He wanted them to go do what he did. So what did Jesus do? What did his earthly ministry look like? Let me give you ten things. He preached the gospel. He made disciples. He healed the sick cast out demons, he ate and drank with people far from God. He did justice. He was a peacemaker. He was consistently in prayer. 
He prophesied. And I don't just mean future telling. He did that too. But he also did truth telling, which is what prophecy is at its heart. It's truth telling from God's word. And finally, he stood up against both religious and political corruption in his day. This is what Jesus did. And every activity falls into one of those things. It seems to me that in order to be a fully formed, mature disciple, you will also do these ten things. Preach the gospel, make disciples, heal the sick, cast out demons, eat and drink with people far from God, do justice, peacemake, pray, prophesy, and stand up against religious and political corruption. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not two years from now. But eventually, these things are the functions of a mature disciple. And I don't mean that as a checklist. I don't mean tomorrow you should go out and preach the gospel and then once you save that person, make them into a fully formed disciple before lunch. Then you go heal somebody sick at the hospital by hitting them on the head. Then you cast out a demon on your way out of the hospital. Then you go and have lunch with someone who's far from God. I don't mean that. It's not a checklist like that. What I mean is these are ten things that we are to embody and live out. These are principles for our everyday life. When and where we can, we engage within these things. And I imagine you're stuck on a casting out demons. I think that's a possibility. I, I just, I, we, we believe here at Cornerstone that there are spiritual forces. That's real. Our battle, like Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. So absolutely, that's a possibility. But, but I also think that casting out demons can be dealing with people's emotional and mental baggage, helping them through demonic strongholds of addiction or patterns in their life that they're living right now that aren't in line with what Jesus desires for them. So here's my point. Don't get stuck on one of those ten functions. You should be doing all of them because the point is that Jesus will change us and grow us. Do you think the fishermen ever thought that they would cast out a demon? Of course not. And yet they did. Do you think that these fishermen ever thought that they would go out of their little area where they lived, all over the world, preaching the message of Jesus Christ? Of course they didn't. They couldn't have imagined that. And yet they did. Because when God changes us, when he transforms us to become more like him, he will also empower us to do his will. It's kind of like running a marathon. Um, if, I, if you were to try to go out and run a marathon tomorrow, if I were to try, I'd die. I'd just not, I would die watching you. Uh, if you tried to run a marathon tomorrow without any training, you're not... You might succeed, but again, you'll have cardiac arrest at the end of the thing. Isn't that what happened? Like, anyway, the ancient guy that ran the marathon and died right as if, after he told the news in ancient Greek time. Anyways, 26 miles. That's a long way to run. If you tried to do that without training, you would have a lot of trouble, if you could even accomplish it. Um, I was watching Brady play guitar up here this morning. You think after one week you're going to be able to play guitar the way that Brady is able to play guitar or play piano the way that Jeremy's able to play? Of course not. But with more practice, you add to your repertoire until finally those things that you've been training for become possible. It's not that they still aren't challenging. Brady can't fall asleep and play guitar up here. He has to be aware of what he's doing. He has to pay attention to the right notes. 
Because we all know when a bad note hits, you know what I'm saying? A, a marathon runner doesn't finish a marathon and go, you want to do another one? You want to go back the other way? They, they don't do that. It's still challenging to run a marathon. It's still challenging to do a difficult task. But the difference is now it's within your ability to do it because of the process of training in the first place. So at the end of your discipleship process with Cornerstone, here's the hope. That you will be able to lead someone to Christ. That you will guide them and train them through spiritual disciplines and scriptural teaching to become mature disciples. You will help them walk through their emotional and mental baggage. Remember casting out demons and healing the sick? You will then look for new relationships with people who are far from God. You will engage in actions and systems that promote justice both here and abroad. You will make peace both with yourself, your family, and with those around you, and you will constantly fight for peace. You will pray and rely on the Holy Spirit more and more. You will tell the truth when it's hard, and you will identify where God's directing you next. And you will stand up to religious and political corruption by participating as a good citizen in your communities. Those are the ten things that mature disciples do. That's the result of a transformed head, heart, and hands. When you live out the three goals, be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did, Jesus will transform you. There is a big difference between a Christian and a disciple. For Jesus, there aren't levels to following him. There's not mild, medium, and spicy Christians. There are only disciples. The label Christian implies that I can comfortably add a religious affiliation to my already awesome resume. But being a disciple communicates that I am all in committed to becoming like Jesus. My desire is to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. Following this model, which is Christ's model, will require an all-in participation from us where we submit ourselves to a mature disciple-maker who wants to see us transformed more into the image of Jesus as we commit to those three goals. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll talk about more about like, how to do that. But first, we've got to start with, am I a Christian or am I a disciple? And which one do I want to be? And where will I be in 10 years based upon that decision? Now, if you're looking for a real relationship with God and a real commitment to following Jesus, this is the church to do it in. If you're new with us this morning, if you're online with us and you're checking, you know, checking us out, this is the church to do that, and we are not content with mere Christians. We want to be followers, apprentices, students, Talmudim, disciples. We want our lives transformed to become like Jesus, and that is what this community is all about. Our covenant members are not just label-wearing Christians. They are committed followers of Christ. We're not perfect, but we're trying our best to follow Jesus. We want to be transformed into his image. So here's how you join, if you'd like to. 
uh, download the Planning Center app. Jeremy said people just talk about it in their everyday conversation, and they just know it's the best possible app that's ever existed. Search Center app. What did I say? Mm-hmm, that one. Go to the, the app and sign up for Discover Cornerstone's next class. The reason we want you to do that uh, is because we want you to know more about who we are so you can make an informed decision about joining with us. Because again, we don't just want people to attach themselves to a church and say, okay, I'm a Christianly person now and I'm good. We want you rather to invest. Because we want to see you transform to live a lifestyle that Jesus is all about. So we'd love for you to go through the Discover Cornerstone class so that you can find out about who we are and then when you join with us, we will then partner with you. We'd love to disciple you and to transform you. And I understand that you're probably a wonderful, mature Christian already. The reason we want to disciple people is because we want to be on the same page about what Jesus' mission and ministry was all about. We want this community to understand what it means to fully be formed and to not assume that we already are because we know some things. We want to live it out. Because if you don't live it, do you really know it? So here's how I want to start today. I want us to bow our heads, and I want us to begin to ask God to reveal to us the answer to this question. Who am I? Who will I be in ten years? Who will I be in 20 years? Where is my current trajectory leading? What am I becoming? And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to inform us and guide us in that understanding because without his help, without his empowering presence, we're going nowhere. We need the Lord in this. God, would you begin to transform us? Would you help us discern in our own hearts? Am I a Christian or am I a disciple? Am I a label wearer or am I a real follower of yours? Would you begin to reveal to us, this is one of your functions, reveal to us the truth about who we are. And wherever we are, whether we're a fully committed disciple or we're kind of on the outskirts and we're just doing Christianly stuff. Would you help us to make real head decisions where we are committing to being with you? Father, we want your presence because in your presence is power and purpose. In your presence is joy and fulfillment. In your presence is love and true life. Move our hearts and challenge us to make this decision to follow you. Father, I'm asking, even through all of the COVID craziness and all the things that are happening, Father, that you would help us to commit this year to our disciples and to our disciple makers and to the process of transformation. Grow us as we adopt new habits. Make us into fishers of men. I'm not content to be a regular Christian anymore. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower of yours. And Father, that's my prayer for this room, God, that you would change our hearts to want that as well because when we desire what you desire, you will change us. Change our head, our hearts, and our hands to be more like you as we commit to the goals of 
being with you, becoming like you and doing what you did. Father, for those who would love to join our church, I pray that you would challenge their hearts right now and move them to become a part of this community. For those who are curious about Jesus, help them to reach out to us that we might build a relationship, begin to talk about what it might look like to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, I pray that you would impact us in this room so that we can impact those around us in our spheres of influence, in our relational circles. Help us to not be content where we are, but rather to push more and to push forward into what you would have for us this year as you transform us into real followers of yours. Bless this year. Bless each one in this room. Bless our efforts to change and to follow. Make us into fishers of men. In Jesus' name we pray.